This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Huge leadership changes are taking place in Colorado's education system. After 14 years as president of Colorado's community college system, Nancy McCallan will retire at the end of the month. And after nearly a decade, Tom Bosberg will leave his position as superintendent of Denver Public Schools, the largest school district in the state. The changes leave us with some important questions. How do you keep education relevant when the economy and technology are changing so quickly? And what are the most persistent, unresolved issues when it comes to schools in this state? And Nancy, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was fascinated by this fact that six in 10 children starting elementary school today will end up in jobs that don't yet exist. This is according to the World Economic Forum. How do you get a student ready for a future you can't really uh, describe at this point, Tom? Yeah, so you you get them ready by developing and stirring in them a love of learning, right? That our, our students will have jobs, they'll be in industries that don't exist today, they haven't dreamed of. Many of them will be in multiple careers and jobs over their lives. The one thing that is constant is all of those jobs will be learning intensive. In today's knowledge economy and futures, futures, futures economy, it will be about knowledge and the ability to learn. So above all, it's developing in our children a love of learning and a sense of learning that, yes, that they're literate, that they're numerate, but that they have a passion and a joy in being able to learn and take on and master new challenges. So that is new, that careers are requiring a desire to learn or that's intensifying? It seems like that might have always been the case. I, I think it has. In many ways, you can go back and look 500 years ago at the Renaissance uh-huh. and what people talked about then in terms of being global-minded and the incredible changes that are taking place in society and the importance of science and math. How is it different? I, I think the intensity of change today is faster than it's ever been. I think the premium on knowledge is far higher than it's ever been. That a generation ago or two generations ago, you could get a family sustaining wage in a job that maybe did not necessarily require a post secondary education. A lot of folks worked in one industry or one com- company for their lives. Uh, for our kids, that's not going to be the case. There's such a premium on knowledge in our knowledge-based economy. Now, some might be thinking a kid either has that thirst for knowledge or doesn't. It's not something you can build. What do you say to that? I I, I totally disagree. I think all children are born into this world uh, curious. They're born learners. They want to learn. It's really something parents play a vital role in and helping their children learn, encouraging them, reading to them. But also schools, right? That 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 learning should be a place. Uh, schools should be a place of joy, uh, where kids take 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 pride in their learning. They take pleasure in their learning. Give me an example of a change you've made to make that happen. Yeah. So one of the things that that we're proudest of is we have a a, a, a program called our fifty two eighty leadership challenge, which takes uh, leaders in our high school students from across the uh, the district, and they work for a whole year as a team on trying to drive a key improvement in their school or their community. They really have to learn about what are the different social factors, how to drive change, what does change management look like, What's how a to work well in teams. On? 
They've taken on many, everything from, uh, for example, uh, bullying in their schools, treatment of LGBTQ uh, kids in our schools, community issues around recycling or the environment, uh, a whole series of challenges that are both within the school, within the community. And there is a real-world application Absolutely. to that. Perhaps that's the joy you're talking about. All right, Nancy McAllen, from the community college perspective, what does it mean to prepare students uh, who are a bit older than than Tom's, uh, for an economy that you can't quite predict. It means that you have to be training them on how to adapt to many different situations, how to think critically, and how to immerse them in today's real-world problems. Today, it's very different than maybe two decades ago, where you learned just a specific skill and had that skill and stayed in that career the rest of your life. Mm. The economy is changing so rapidly, not just with technology, but with globalization, that you have to expose students to many different situations and immerse them and also do game-based theory with them. Game-based theory. Explain that for us. So essentially, you have real-world issues that are interactive with them that are sort of like games. And in other words, they have different outcomes, and that outcome is never necessarily predictable and also is not necessarily, there's not necessarily a right or wrong outcome. Can you bring us into a classroom where this happens or a subject matter so I can understand this? Well, for example, for disaster management training, we do whole-scale disaster management exercises where we stage real-world issues of, for instance, a plane blowing up, and how do the first responders react to that? How do they triage? What is their first um, line of defense, and how do they treat the individuals? And then how do you get them and transfer them to the hospitals and work with all of the different disaster management um entities to make sure they're successful. This is in what line of degree? That would be paramedic emergency services, um, uh, nursing. So textbooks don't cut it anymore? No, that's not, that's not the case. You use textbooks, but you also have to create real-world situations to which they react. And that is new? Absolutely. Oftentimes, um, the critical thinking aspect and the adaptability aspect, maybe three decades ago, was not as critical and was not utilized as much because people were choosing a profession and staying in that profession a significant amount of their lives. What I've heard you both say is this idea, not only do you not know what profession a a kid today might join tomorrow, but what four professions they may join over the course of their lives. What, What do you think is the most vexing problem facing education in Colorado right now? One that you tried to chip away at, but perhaps your successors will have to address. Tom Bosberg from DPS. I think clearly the most vexing issue in, in Colorado is making sure that all kids get terrific educational opportunities. That educational opportunity is not a factor of your privilege, of how much money your mom or dad makes, or the color of your skin, or where you live. Right? We continue in this state and throughout this country not to offer the kinds of opportunities to our highest needs students or lower income students or students in poverty uh, that they deserve. And I'm proud of the progress we've made. We've doubled the number of black and Latino students who are going to college every year. We've doubled that in 10 years. But we have tremendous more work to do in Denver Public Schools and across the country to make sure that the talent that we have, uh, that we realize that talent and that the inequities that we have in our society are not perpetuated by inequities in our schools, but rather 
to the contrary, our schools serve as engines and drivers of opportunity and equity uh, for our community. So this is often referred to as the achievement gap, and it is also uh, very much associated with race, with income. Uh, How do you think you were able to double, as you say, the uh, graduation rate and passing on uh, kids of, of uh, who are African-American, I think you said, and onto Latino, college yeah. and Latino onto yeah. college. Yeah. So I think it starts first with just a deep belief in every student, a willingness to take on biases and prejudices in our society and believe deeply in the potential and talent of every kid. Do you mean teachers checking their own Throughout bias? our whole society, uh, teachers, parents, community members, uh, superintendents. Right, all of us making sure that we challenge our biases and that we believe deeply in every kid. I think what's, it, what's a bias you had that you had to check? Um, you, you, I'm not sure that uh, that's, that's, that's a fair question, uh, or I think it is a fair question. Um, you know, I, I think I had to had to come in. Thinking a little bit about um, how we make sure that we can have, uh, uh, you know, very, very high standards for all of our kids. Uh, I think that one of the things sometimes that we struggle with is is where a kid is really struggling, mm. right? How do you support that kid and also make sure that you have a very high standards for that kids and for that student and for every one of our students. As opposed um, to saying maybe this kid has foca- has has faced a lot of difficulty yeah. in his or her life. Should we adjust the curriculum or the expectations yeah. accordingly? And, and I'll say the second part of this is a willingness to challenge the status quo and a willingness to innovate. I think Denver Public School has been recognized nationally as one of the most innovative school districts in the country in terms of what we've done around teacher leadership, collaboration, for example, with district-run schools and charter schools. You know, I think it really takes public schools. There's lots of political pressure. There's lots of political resistance to change. But if we're not satisfied with where we are, and I am not satisfied with where we are, that takes a willingness to change and to confront things that aren't working. From the community college perspective, Nancy McAllen, what's been most vexing? I think there are two things that have been most vexing. One is what Tom referred to, and that is the achievement gap, and not only the achievement gap for students of color, but also between urban and rural Colorado, because in Colorado, we rank seventh in the nation in the achievement gap between our rural entities and our urban institutions. That is to say, where you live may predict how well you do. Absolutely. Where, and whether or not you go on to college. So some of the things we have done in order to help that is get into the high schools, show students they can be successful in college credit courses, and get them in so-called concurrent enrollment or dual enrollment courses. And we're seeing tremendous positive results for students of color, as well as for students in rural Colorado. Where many of your community colleges are. Six of our colleges are in rural Colorado, and they actually have higher penetration into the high schools than in the metro area. The idea that you are earning college credit while you are in high school so that there's something of a bridge built between those two early on. And you said there was a second vexing problem. The second is the so-called Colorado paradox, the fact that there is a skilled workforce shortage in the state. And we have done significant things to address that skilled workforce shortage. And in fact, about um, 60% of all growth in degrees and certificates 
advocates in the state have come out of our system over the last decade. But there's more to be done on that. The Colorado paradox is the idea that Colorado needs a very educated workforce, but it often has to import those workers as opposed to creating its own. That's something that you've tried to address at uh, the community college system. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking uh, with two... Can I call you titans of education (laughs) in Colorado who are uh, stepping down after long tenures? Uh, You've just heard Nancy McCallan uh, for 14 years. She's been president of Colorado's community college system. And Tom Bosberg is leaving his position as superintendent of Denver Public Schools, the largest district in the state. And here we have uh, both of you from two levels of education. And it makes me wonder how much... K through 12 education is talking to higher education, is talking to community colleges. If you are on the same page, this is not the first time you've sat in a room together, I gather. So we we talk very frequently, and I think I'm very grateful for the partnership that we have with our community college system, with our four year college system. Um, I'd also say a critical third partner here is. Our employers, right? That that it's so important that this not just be a community conversation among educators, but that our employers, both profit, for profit, and not for profit, are at the table discussing how are we working together uh, as in you know educators, and also with our employers to make sure that our students are understanding the kinds of opportunities that are out there, they're prepared for the opportunities that are out there, and that in their education. Uh, that they are getting both educational classroom experience but also workplace experience. And I know that that you have apprenticeships, for instance, in DPS at this point. We did. So we introduced this year a very path-breaking program nationally where beginning in your junior year in high school, you go to school for three days a week, you work two days a week in a paid apprenticeship and a job that that is an upskilling job, software development, network design, advanced manufacturing, healthcare. And you increasingly, in your classroom time, you're taking community college courses. So your classes, they may be at the community college, they may be at the high school. So while still in high school, you are working in a paid job, and you are getting college credit towards uh, an advanced degree. And that's a product of the collaboration we have with our community college system. And think what that means for a student who may be from a family where they're the first in their family to go to college while still in high school. They're getting college credit, they're succeeding college, and they're also succeeding in the workplace uh, in a paid apprenticeship. And earning money, you say, which Absolutely. might be critical to that family. Nancy McCallan, is there enough coordination between higher education in this state and K-12 through schools? Well, I think that community colleges are the intersection with high schools throughout the state and higher education. We are educating over 25,000 high school students, and in some of our rural colleges, as much as 30% of our enrollment is going into the high schools and getting those students college-level credit and getting them interested in going on to higher education. And also, we have significant and always have had significant interaction with business and industry, learning what they need and teaching for those skills for business and industry. You know, I I can see the benefits of doing that, right? You are preparing the workforce, and so they need to have the skills that employers require. And yet I can imagine some listening thinking that that rapprochement between education and and for-profit businesses is unsettling, right? How much of an education really should be shaped by corporate America, for instance? (laughs) What do you both say to that? I I would say that 
the primary reason we find our students coming to us is they want to earn a good standard of living and have a meaningful career that makes a difference. And you need to listen to business and industry, and not just business and industry, but all employers, because government is a large employer as well, and learn what skills they need in the marketplace to address that so students can have a worthwhile career. Have you scrapped a program, scrapped an approach, simply because the business community just thought it was useless. Well, clearly, changed direction. we actually have closed over 3,000 programs in the 14 years I've been there. And we've added some as well. We've added over 5,000. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's a constant change and it's a constant turn in terms of demanding to the needs of the marketplace and where the jobs are. And if bi- business and industry is not hiring, it doesn't make any sense for us to have students spend time at our institutions, go into debt, and spend money if there's not a meaningful career for them afterwards. So although a business has said, may have come in and say, no, I don't need that, it's not that we're going to close the program in and of that. But if you don't have enrollment and if those students are not getting jobs, I feel we have failed in what we've done. So we need to assure a good earning career for these students after they leave us or one that's worthwhile. Can you think of a student who embodies that? Maybe someone you've talked to recently. Um, in embodies needing um, a, a job and a position? Sure. Or? I mean, I guess that's every student, but every anything student. stick out in your mind? Well, so for, let me talk to you about a young student who came to us through Aurora Public Schools, um, first generation in his family to go to college. Didn't think he'd ever go to college. He got hooked on going to college through our concurrent enrollment program. So taking those college-level courses while in high school. So dual enrollment. And he started in the engineering field. He thought that he was going to go to work in construction and not even worry a day about um, what he was going to do differently. He got so excited about what was happening at the community colleges that he earned two associate's degrees with us, went on to Colorado School of Mines, graduated from there, and is an engineer up in Fort Collins at Agilent. So the, and then not only that, he encouraged his brother, his younger brother, so a generation, if you will, to do the same thing, to take these courses and then to change the course of their career. And they have a career that is very worthwhile for them. And one that they didn't expect to to be in. Absolutely. Tom, you've had to deal with some controversies during your time as superintendent. I think more recently of the East High School cheerleading investigation where students were forced into splits. And as our education reporter Jenny Brundine found an allegedly abusive culture in some departments at Denver School of the Arts. And I wonder how those issues have affected your ability to implement the agenda you've talked to us about here. Yeah, I think those those have been uh, important challenges, right? Our first duty is to protect the safety and the dignity of every one of our students. And I think when you have 90,000 students, are there issues that arise? Yes, there are. I think the important thing is to be able to deal with those issues with integrity, uh, to be able to take them head on to ensure that when folks do have concerns, they feel safe in raising them, uh, and that those concerns are resolved with uh, integrity uh, and transparency. And again, I don't necessarily see those two in conflict. I think that that ability to be very clear with parents in our community that their kids will be safe, that they will be treated with dignity and respect uh, is fundamental to their learning. And do you feel that those were conducted with integrity? I do. You do. Uh, We have about a minute left. Uh, Biggest challenge for your successor? 
or a piece of advice. How about a piece of advice? Dispense advice. You have 30 <laughs> seconds, Nancy McKellen. Um, take your job seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. There's a lot of good things that can happen if you don't just strive for perfection. Tom Bosberg? I would say try to model the joy, right? That, that learning should be a place of, of joy and fun. Try to model that uh, in your act- interactions with students and teachers. Because above all, if our students and teachers can go to work every day, feeling they're going to take joy from their profession as teachers, take joy from their opportunity to learn in our schools, uh, I think, one, they'll learn a lot better. Uh, and second, they'll have a lot more fun uh, and go f- be able to go forward with that much more confidence to the next steps in their lives. Tom Bosberg, leaving as superintendent of Denver Public Schools. Pardon me, <clears throat> losing my voice. Mm-hmm. They have not yet chosen his successor. Mm-hmm. Nancy McCallan is retiring as president of the Colorado a community college system, and she'll be replaced by Joe Garcia, former lieutenant governor. There's a third high-profile departure coming that we should mention. Bruce Benson will step down as president of the University of Colorado system a year from now. Seniors are the fastest growing demographic of marijuana users, but there's not a lot of data about them. That is changing. There's a new state-funded study on pot use among older people in Colorado. Brian Kasky of the University of Iowa is on the team that did this research. And Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Why is it important, first off, to learn more about how seniors use marijuana? Well, as you said, I think the the primary reason is there's been such a spike in the increase of use among older persons, uh, people over 60 years old. And when I talk to the program directors uh, in states like Colorado or Illinois, um, they are just surprised and shocked by this. Um, They really didn't expect to see this. And more importantly, they don't understand what's driving it. And so we, uh, through the Colorado Department of Public Health, uh, my colleagues and I there at the University of Colorado, the Anschutz Medical Center and University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, uh, decided to conduct a study in which we simply went out and talked to older adults and then uh, fielded a survey, a bunch of questions from them in order to learn more. And we'll dig into the results of those. But in other words, Colorado sees this, what, as a public health imperative to have a better understanding? I do believe so. I mean, when you mix two things together, like the general growth that you're having with the older population in Colorado, that is, you're not only having people who are continuing to live there and age in place, Uh But you all are experiencing a large what we call in-migration of retirees that are people moving to Colorado who are over age 60. And then you put that together with um, the cannabis program the state has established that now um, includes both medical and recreational components. Uh, It's a very interesting intersection. Okay. You want to understand what happens when those two forces are uh, happening in parallel. So Mm -hmm. you you collected this data in two ways. Focus groups, Mm -hmm. we'll get to those in just a moment, but a really detailed survey was part of this. What stood Mm -hmm. out from the survey results? 
Well, first off, um, we were able to compare cannabis users with non-users. That hasn't really happened a whole lot in research before. Either you are able just to look at cannabis users through a program, but rarely can you differentiate them from non-users. And what stands out? That, well, as you might suspect, uh, the folks who are using cannabis have higher levels of self-reported pain. That is, they have symptoms that they want to manage. And they also have higher use of opioids and other prescription drugs. So they're coming to marijuana uh, or cannabis for a different reason uh, than maybe a younger person might. It's, it's just not a recreational thing. It's just not about feeling good. In this case, for an older population, it really is medical. They're trying to manage their pain and decrease their use of prescription drugs. So do you find, in fact, that seniors are more apt to use medical marijuana than recreational marijuana? That is, do they have the doctor-issued card more often? Good question. Actually, what we found is is there's a mix. So one of the uh, questions that we had on the survey was, what are your, your motives for use? We found out of the sample, about 40% of the older adults used one format or another. And I would say about a third of those used for recreation only. That is, you know, they just, they enjoyed it. It's relaxing. Another third said they only use for medical purposes. And then there was a mix. There was a third that said, you know what, I tried using this uh, for medical reasons. And you know what, I found I like it. So I also use it for wellness and relaxation. Or the converse, we've had people who, you know, might have been lifelong users who always used it recreationally, but as they got older, uh, you know, we had one person talk about how when he comes in from skiing, um, you know, he's a little more achy than he used to be, and, and he sees this as a way to help manage those symptoms of pain and muscle fatigue. Uh, okay, to the focus groups, you sit down mm-hmm. and you just ask seniors about their use. What stood out yep. from those conversations? Well, what we we found were about five prominent themes, and what we mean by that are are things that just kept coming up over and over across these different groups. Yeah, give me a few of them. So to be mindful is is one, is the lack of information and education. There just isn't a whole lot of uh, available out there through, you know, reliable or, um, you know, validated websites or other information where older adults who may be interested in using or may be thinking about using, um, there's nothing there for them that they feel comfortable with. And so they're asking for more of that. So if they go into a doctor's office, you know, like you see brochures about how to, you know, see the signs of diabetes, for example, mm. you don't see a brochure about cannabis. And then the second thing that came up on the education part was once they do start using, a lot of them don't have previous experience. So they're a little, you know, reluctant to go into a retail store where it's, you know, the environment may be a little bit different than what they're used to. And so this leads into the second theme we kind of highlighted was they really do want health care providers to be involved with helping them, you know, not only think about using, but once they do decide to try using, they, they want that sort of reassurance or guidance from a professional physician 
rather than just somebody at a retail store. And, and I guess this, really is, this, is, out of this. this is Go true ahead. even if they're using recreational marijuana. So uh, having a red card means you have to go to a doctor to get it. But I think what I'm hearing is that seniors, and I, I suppose that people of all ages might feel this right. to some extent, want their health care provider, even if they're using recreationally, to be informed and to be able to talk mm-hmm. to them about this. Yes, and and what was surprising is the counter on that is how, if you will, reluctant or just plain uh, resistant, so many of the healthcare providers that they interface were uh, to this issue. Huh. On one hand, the physicians we talked to separately would say, "Well, we don't know a whole lot about it. This isn't an FDA-approved drug," and secondly, they have legal concerns. They don't want to be. Um, recommending something that may, you know, in fact, still be considered illegal at the federal level and may be subject to some sort of oversight that they don't want to be exposed to. Right. I mean, I can hear instances of my doctor saying, do you, you know, do you smoke? Do you use drugs? And there's that inherent kind of judgment that you feel mm-hmm. if the question mm-hmm. arises. And, and is it that they want more, like a more neutral space to be able to talk about this? Exactly. Okay. And in fact, that's, that's an interesting point you made, because we found at least 20% of our survey respondents still were reluctant to even discuss it, or um, they felt a stigma was associated with telling us whether or not they used. I mean, there were parts of the state we tried to represent with, with focus groups and survey sampling, and they just, they just seemed a little trepid, you know, concerned. They were uh, trepidation about going forward and just talking about this. There is a fear or stigma out there still. Any dangers for seniors using cannabis that that may have emerged? Well, this was this was a real interesting finding because most of the studies that have been done before come out of something called the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So most of their survey questions have to do with negative outcomes. You know, are you um, enrolled in a substance abuse program? Have you gone to the emergency room more? Did you get in a driving accident? How have you performed in school? Well, for seniors, a lot of those outcomes just aren't relevant. I mean, uh, we had seniors report, I'm not worried about my school performance anymore. I don't work anymore, so I don't have to worry about on-the-job testing. So a lot of the ways this has been measured historically just really don't have as much salience for older adults. And so we asked them, well, tell us what you do experience. And we universally found positive outcomes. They, they report overall, improved quality of life, better pain management. Uh, it was surprising for us to see that. Whereas the negative outcomes, they were there, but they we called it, they were convergent. They were spotty. Some okay. people said they had this experience and others said they had another. Brian, thanks so much. He's Brian Kasky of the University of Iowa, and he's helping lead a study of marijuana use among Colorado seniors. The federal agency that oversees most of the country's public lands is moving from Washington, D.C. to somewhere in the West, and Colorado is on the short list. Republican Representative Scott Tipton confirmed last week the decision to move the Bureau of Land Management. But he's been making the case for Colorado to be its new home for some time. The congressman joins us from Washington, D.C., and thanks for being with us. Ryan, pleasure to be with you. I want to make sure that listeners have some context. Many BLM employees are already in the West. 
uh, because this is where so much of the land is. Uh, But why do you think this headquarters move, if you will, would be good for the state, for the region? A lot of the decisions ultimately that are made by the BLM are made in Washington, D.C. And as you know, the vast majority of employees are actually within the various areas of the BLM, primarily out west. And uh, to be able to have the actual administrative agency in the west where the lands are, we think will yield a better result, simply being near the land, the people that are going to be impacted, uh, and a good possibility to make sure that we're taking into account uh, a lot of the local initiatives and our state initiatives uh, when it comes to endangered species, land preservation. We think we can get some better solutions, and it doesn't all have to be centralized in Washington, D.C. Can you give me an uh, example of a, of a decision here. you think uh, didn't work that might have worked better simply because a headquarters had a different location? Well, we think uh, if we take an example, because decisions were being made in Washington with some of the sage grass uh, management that was going on. Uh, We have uh, the empirical evidence uh, that through state initiatives, local, and then farmer and rancher initiatives to be able to reinvigorate the species and to be able to protect the sage grass, we're making positive impacts on reinvigorating that population. However, they were discounting those initiatives at Washington's level. So this is an opportunity to be able to have those administrators actually out on the land to be able to see it. Uh, It's not a major trip. You're going to be there. And uh, you can see those ideas uh, that are grown at the local level actually come to fruition and uh, achieve, we hope, a better result. What benefits could this move bring if it comes to Colorado? And I know that you are specifically angling for the Grand Junction area uh, jobs would move there. What do you think the economic impact would be? Well, I think it would be a positive. Uh, you know, we see it in state government right now. Virtually everything is centralized in Denver. Uh, to be able to move it out into some of our more rural areas, it's certainly going to be able to bring some people in that are going to help invigorate some local economies, create some collateral jobs as well, obviously impact some of the housing industry, some of the retail applications as well. And uh, we see a lot of positives of that happening, and we'd love to be able to see it in the 3rd Congressional District, and we'll continue to advocate uh, with Secretary Zinke that we'd be the best choice. Secretary of the Interior, that's in charge of the BLM. Uh, Point blank, do you hope moving the BLM to Colorado would lead to more oil and gas development and perhaps more mining here? You know, I think uh, our, our position has always been all of the above. Uh, but it's not strictly on energy. It's also on responsible land management as well. When we talk about all of the above, that includes the outdoor industry, uh, to be able to create those opportunities for people to recreate on our public lands, to be able to have access to them. And uh, we see a lot of multiple positives that could come. Let me say that Secretary Zinke has mentioned Denver as a possible option for moving the headquarters. Salt Lake City and Boise are also uh, perhaps stiff competition. Uh, Why do you think the 3rd Congressional District? There are places with bigger airports. It's easier to get back and forth to Washington from. Uh, What do you think Grand Junction has going for it? Well, uh, first, if we look at Denver as an example, I think if we look at the map, they don't have any BLM land in Denver. Uh, so if we're going to be moving uh, the BLM to be closer to the lands that they supervise, let's actually move it into the areas where the BLM land is present. 
and uh, I think on the west slope of Colorado in, in the 3rd Congressional District, uh, where we have an abundance of BLM land, uh, that would be the best choice. And what about something like Salt Lake or Boise? Uh, I'm naturally going to be favoring our district. I think, really, if you just look at a central location and uh, then the proximity to be able to disperse people out on the field, to be able to go out and actually see projects, uh, to be able to listen to concerns, uh, the central location that we'd provide, I think, would be superior to Boise or to Salt Lake as well. This decision will relocate about 400 BLM employees who currently live in Washington, D.C., uh, let me push back here. Is it wise to move them away from the seat of power and ask some of them to fly back and forth? I mean, is there a certain inefficiency there? Uh, you know, we've we've invented phones and the Internet. Uh, I think we'll have good connectivity. Okay. <laughs> you think that uh, distance can be bridged digitally, I suppose. Anything you've heard in Washington that indicates Colorado might be ranking uh, above other Western states, or is it um, uh, totally wide open at this point? You know, I think we're well positioned. Uh, I've advocated with Secretary Zinke. I know Senator Gardner and Senator Bennett have as well. Uh, was in a meeting, and um, he seemed to be looking favorably on the 3rd Congressional District. Uh, obviously, we'll have other communities and other states that will be making their case, but we've been very forthright and uh, aggressive in terms of making our case uh, for the 3rd Congressional District. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Good to be with you. Congressman Scott Tipton speaking to us about the possibility the Bureau of Land Management will move its headquarters to Colorado. He is seeking re-election. The story now of an animal that's really hard to get to know. It doesn't help that it comes out at night, but we'll do our best in wild tracks about animal sounds in the Mountain West. I originally came from the bird world where if you wanted to understand where and how many birds were present, we could ask amateur birders to go out into the field and listen or count the number of birds that they might see or hear at a given location. Frankly, that's just not possible when it comes to bats. Bats are elusive, they're nocturnal, um, they're small, and the sounds that they make are at the range that it's not audible for humans. This requires that we have specialized equipment, microphones and detectors that can pick up ultrasonic noise that's emitted during bat echolocation. My name is Brian Reichert. I'm an ecologist for the North American Bat Monitoring Program, a continental-wide monitoring program so that we can understand the distributions and trends of North American bats. So this is the sound of an echolocating spotted bat. And what makes this special is that spotted bats are one of the few species that echolocate within the audible range of humans. So you could go outside and actually hear this bat flying overhead. And this is the exact same recording slowed down. Bats are considered the denizens of the dark, right, or vampires. But they consume large amounts of bugs. They provide really important services for pollination, seed dispersal. We're just finally getting to the point with technology where we can reliably identify calls. And so... 
if we use that information and the advances in technology, we're at a very exciting time to be able to leverage that and to make real advances for bat conservation. Those sounds came from the North American Bat Monitoring Program at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Wild Tracks is produced by Sam Brash. He is trained in classical European cooking and has worked in posh restaurants. Now, Carlos Baca is a self-described indigenous food activist. A return to his roots. Baca grew up foraging for traditional Native American ingredients in Colorado's San Juan Mountains and says the loss of traditional foods threatens the lives of his people. Carlos, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What do you remember about foraging for ingredients as a kid? What were those days like? Uh, I remember summers with my grandparents and uh, laying down blankets underneath pinon trees and climbing up there and shaking nuts out and going home and roasting them. I remember my grandma handing us uh, bags and sending us out to find purslane for dinner. Purslane? Yeah. What is that? Uh, Purslane is a... It's just a little common weed you find all over the place. Okay. Uh, uh, or uh, bear root, which is is commonly known as osha. Yeah, bear root is something that I uh, have not been exposed to until hearing about you. And we actually caught up with you as you used it to prepare a dish. Begin grinding your bear root to season the water. Uh, bear root is a very strong medicine, and uh, the two things that people liken it to the most are almost a chili because of the spice it has, and also it's likened to maple syrup. How can something be both like chili and maple syrup? Tell us about bear root. <laughs> uh, well, so in harvesting those things, one... Um, Sustainability and an indigenous uh, harvesting are, are hand in hand. And so you always wait till it begins to seed because when you take the root, you need to take the, the seed head and replant it. Right? This plant takes 10 years to, to really form. Oh, my. And uh, depending on whether you're picking, picking it on a waxing or a waning moon, the taste differential is going to be extreme. From spicy, perhaps, to sweet. Yes, very much so. Bear root is a key ingredient in a recipe that you shared with us, blue corn mush with pine needle syrup. This mm-hmm. is a dish that I understand reminds you of your Dene and Ute grandparents. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think of, you know, blue corn um, and corn mush pretty much across the board for indigenous and nations across this country. It's considered a first and a last food. What does that mean? Uh, that means it's one of the first things a, a native child, a native baby will eat as a first food, and it's going to be the last food that you eat on the way out. It's chewable. It is. It is. And uh, it reminds me of my grandmother to no end. It's it's something that she fed me, and it's something I remember being in the fridge at all times, <laughs> and I remember uh, a lot of, of that... Uh, just being part of my childhood. 
Um, whereas like with the bear root, my grandfather, uh, I remember him taking me to go get water from, uh, spring and which I still do <laughs> to this day. Um, and coming across the, the bear root plant and him explaining to me and showing me how to harvest it. So it's really just a, a merger of, of my grandparents' uh, traditions. So you've left the formal culinary life behind, those posh restaurants. Uh, and in fact, I've heard that your friends have given you a new title. You are now the activist formerly known as Chef. <laughs> That's right. Um, so <laughs> y- you've really changed how you relate to food and cooking. What What do you think prompted that? Um, really understanding what the Western ideal of chef is, which is being this uh, figurehead, this power, right? And you are in control of everything and you can call whoever to bring you whatever you need. I'm picturing Gordon Ramsay when you say this. Right. I mean, this is your traditional model of of what it means to be a chef, um, where I'm the exact opposite of that in reality is that you know, the kitchen is out, my kitchen's outside. My pantry is outside. Um, I don't ever get to dictate what is going on because I don't know what's going to come out this year. I don't know if something, I mean, I just was in Albuquerque harvesting. Uh, I was looking for a specific plant. What was it? Uh, Chimiha, which is a, a, like a mountain parsley okay. in a way. Um, and last year it was prolific. This year I found only two plants, whereas I found last year choya buds were just starting to do, which is a choya is a, the type there is called a walking cactus. Um, and you pick the bud off it. Last year it was barely starting. This year it was prolific. Um, so you never know, right? In other words, you're taking orders from a higher source. Yeah, you have to. Uh-huh. Right? And that's why I can't say that I'm a chef because I can't dictate how do you think that view might transform the health of indigenous communities, you know, which struggle with obesity and diabetes? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, while it is at a higher rate on reservations, it is across the board mm-hmm. in this country. And, um, and in partially because of chefs and uh, the disconnect with food in our system. And, you know, like when I say food is medicine and... And memory and all of these things, it's a reality, you know, and we've displaced ourselves from the entire system of food. And within the indigenous foods sovereignty movement, that's what we're moving towards for our communities is really plugging that in. What is that movement? Help me understand what it means to have an indigenous foods sovereignty movement. Well, uh, you have to get into the historical context of the warfare against indigenous food systems, which starts with boats landing on either end of this continent and down south. And, you know, uh, the crops were burned, things were illegal, chocolate was illegal, amaranth was illegal at one point, um, uh, chopping down all our orchards, killing all the bison, displacement, which takes you out of your food system and drops you in Oklahoma, right? So the, these right. things... When you are uh, a people that moves about the country and then you are forced onto one parcel of land... That has to change what you eat. Yeah, well, I mean, most most tribes were pretty stationary in that they were in a specific region, right? Yeah. So if you take somebody from the eastern woodlands of uh, the New England region and drop them in Oklahoma, what does their food system become, right? Um, and so basically what we're trying to do is re, uh, 
reorganize and reinstill our traditional, not only foraging, but agricultural methods and, and become fully sustainable in and of ourselves. What does that look like in the Four Corners? Oh, in the Four Corners, a lot of awesome projects going on, really. We have, uh, say, like Taos Pueblo, they have uh, Red Willow Farm, which is, you know, they do farmer's markets and they grow food for the community. And it's also a learning center. Um, you have places like the Deep School, which is in the Chusca Mountains in Navajo, New Mexico, um, where the kids are learning from... Uh, in the indigenous perspective with Western perspectives outside of that circle um, where they're growing their own foods and they have their planted their own orchard and they're learning wild foods. Um, you know, I mean, so they're learning from that through language programs also mixed in with that and the agriculture. So, it's, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. It's amazing. You talk about food also as medicine. I wonder if in, in the waning seconds we have, if you might just expound on how that influences a meal you serve yourself uh yeah you know I mean, it's like just just reiterating something we've been talking about with blue corn and bear root right i mean you have this medicine infused with the sustenance and therefore um you know it, it was traditionally that ideal is a, a winter food um, so if you're going hunting in the winter you would have a nice little dried cake mixed with fat and berries in this right so you have all that medicine with you well, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Chef Carlos Baca speaking with me in April. He'll demonstrate what the indigenous food movement is all about this Saturday night at the Central Library in Pueblo. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters, and we are on Facebook. CPR News. You can also subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes, and we're also on NPR One. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.